0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So our friend Cody Townsend is off this week. He's trying to go climb up some mountain for... That project he's on, it's the, I think it's called the 40 Project. Um, So he is not here, but you are in luck, ladies and gentlemen, because this means we had a chance to sneak in a guest host. And this is someone who is, I mean, let's just say it, objectively smarter and funnier and actually able to draw more than 100 listeners. Unlike our dear friend Cody, Cody and so i am very happy to have with me today dr len nesifer len is the founder of natives outdoors he is a professional shit poster while also being the founder of the sonoran avalanche center and a policy expert and len is someone who is very much challenging and working to change the outdoor industry while simultaneously laughing as hard and having as much fun As anyone in the outdoor industry. And in this conversation, I think you're going to find all of the things I've just said about Len to be very much true and very much on display. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Len Nessefer. Here we go. Well, Len, how are you today and where
1: are you today? I'm good, man. I'm back in Tucson. I was out in Florida for a couple days, so different kind of heat, but I'm excited to be back in the desert. (laughs) What had you in Florida? I was out for a couple days uh, working with the Seminole and Miccosukee tribes. They invited me out to help them with a co-management plan that they're developing with the National Park uh, for the Everglades and Big Cypress National Preserve. So it was a super high level conversation, but really is starting getting the ball rolling on. Uh, Some of the co-management and co-stewardship projects that the administration is really trying to push with tribes around public lands. So it was fun. Uh, Got to stay in the Hard Rock Hotel and be a part of that, which the Seminole tribe owns, which they own the whole franchise of Hard Rock, which is pretty insane. Uh, But back home in Tucson now.
0: Hmm. So for folks who are unfamiliar and they just tuned in, they're still wondering what happened to Cody. And uh, we'll tell them at the end how we just said we fired Cody now. But tell people a bit how on earth it is that you got into this line of work and consulting. Yeah, I started
1: a company called Natives Outdoors uh, a couple years ago. Uh, we do film media work, consulting, um, and some design collaboration work. And uh, part of, you know, actually Cody, the reason why I know him is he reached out to me a few years ago as part of his 50 project and we skied uh one of the lines outside of Moab in the LaSalle mountains with him. Um, so that's how I know Cody. And so I've started really working more in the snow sports space, uh, through that and made a, helped make a feature length film called spirit of the peaks, uh, that was directed by one of our athletes, Connor Ryan. And, um, yeah, I just, just love the industry. I love being a part of it. So I got my foot and fingers in a lot of different, a lot of different places.
0: Yes, you do. Backing up just a bit further. You're a doctor.
1: I am. Yeah, I can fix your philosophy. So that's about as far as my <laughs> doctoral skills go. <laughs> I know, I have a I have a doctorate. I'm my undergrad, I went to school for mechanical engineering, dabbled in aerospace and in environmental stuff for a while and really was interested in the policy angle, so I went to uh uh Carnegie Mellon uh University where I got a degree in engineering and public policy. Um and yeah, I've worked a lot in Uh, in energy and environmental policy was my main focus. And I was really focused on um, the ways in which culture and the differences between culture influence policy preferences effectively. Um, And yeah, that translates a lot into my work now because, you know, when we go outdoors, we're seeing the outdoors and our experience through the cultural lens. And, you know, it's not that different from, you know, whether we're skiing or climbing or whatever it is to creating environmental policy, that lens is always there. So I found that really interesting. And so that's led me working in government, doing these sorts of things. But, you know, I eventually found my way to the outdoor industry uh, through Bears Ears, uh, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, this co-managed national monument. And I realized very quickly that the culture and nature of work in the outdoor world was very much, uh, well, more suited to my lifestyle. (laughs) So, I made the jump about uh, six years ago.
0: What was the title of your thesis? And if it doesn't, have the word shitposting in it, I don't believe you. <laughs> uh, I, I literally just had to Google it because I totally forgot.
1: Uh, but it's development of a decision aid for energy resource management for the Navajo Nation, incorporating environmental cultural
0: values. <laughs> <laughs> real, real succinct.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I have three papers up there. I got those, you know, it's like the, the first most cited paper on Google Scholars, Energy Development in Native Americans, Values and Beliefs About Energy from the Navajo Nation, which was a fun paper to write. But uh, yeah, very different world and definitely not shitposting.
0: Which uh, maybe is the right segue to my next question. Uh, speaking of shit posting, tell the people a little bit about the Sonoran Avalanche Center.
1: Yeah, totally. I totally blindsided you at that, uh at the panel yep. at the Blister Summit. <laughs> yes, you did. <do. laughs> I just rewatched that segment. But for those that were there, I gave this cold open, very serious. Jonathan and I just met, I don't know, what, 30 minutes before yeah. or something like that. And, you know, I just, I basically said what I do at the Sonoran Avalanche mm-hmm. Center is I'm the chief facet officer for the Sonoran Avalanche Center, which is a for-profit avalanche center based in tucson arizona and you might ask why we're for profit well like unlike most avalanche centers we like that we like that grind set and so we're open year round we focus on non-snow avalanches and also trying to expose the conspiracy of big avalanches because you know, avalanches drive more people to ski in resorts, and we think there's a profit motive there because you know, as a for-profit entity, we can see these things pretty clearly. And yeah, we really we work a lot in climate messaging. We work in getting out the vote, and you know, most days of the year, we're just posting nonsense to the internet, <laughs> which um, you know is, I guess, we're a marketing agency at that.
0: <laughs> you you do it you do it well. <laughs> I, I I was funny. I um I'm pretty sure I was. I like woke up or something. I don't remember what time of day, but I saw that you had just posted again your intro from the summit. And I just was, I was watching myself. I was so delighted. I was so happy with what was going on here. And I was just like, are we just going to do this and like, you know, forget the other panelists for a minute. And like, we're just going to do this the whole time. And oh my God, Um, it it turned out that was a great conversation. I'm really, really happy with it. Um, But I, it was a hell of an opener. You were, you, you came in hot.
1: I came in really hot. And I'll tell you, Jonathan, I was not planning to do that until like about five seconds before I was supposed to get my intro.
0: <laughs> I think it worked out well. and And look, here we are now reviewing the news. Here we are, speaking of which, you know, when it comes to the really most important news in the outdoor industry, I think there's only one place we can begin, and that is with the Gwyneth Paltrow ski trial that, uh, let's see, after our last reviewing the news, Cody and I said we were going to try to learn a bit more about this because neither of us really knew anything. And then right after that, a, tr- a verdict was reached. Dear Gwyneth was uh, declared innocent. But you and I, I still wanted to talk with you about this video that i had mentioned last time on reviewing the news have you have now had a chance to watch this like expert testimony on this like what might have kind of been the crash yeah it's insane <laughs> i it, there's no other word it's like it's an, an insane
1: and then also a really expensive version of insane yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah it's uh, it was it was crazy cuz like i it's basically the video is uh, a CGI reenactment of the crash of Gwyneth Paltrow and this, this dude that was suing her uh, Sanderson, yeah. Terry Sanderson. And it was, it was high quality. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> which, you know, there was high production value in that CGI. And the also the other fact that they had to hire this expert witness, which is not cheap. I'm sure that guy was charging, A few thousand dollars an hour, not to mention like to produce a video like that. It's it's crazy. I'm literally watching it on slow motion right now because it's just so absurd.
0: (laughs) I just had no idea that skiing was going to sort of come to the front of the mainstream consciousness in this form, like cartoon animation, hypothetical crashes of um, movie stars. So that that I did not really see coming. I mean I could easily see this
1: fitting into a Pixar movie, you know, if it was a little longer. <laughs> I don't know what it would be exactly, <laughs> but it has the potential, you know, maybe a te- this is the teaser to the, you know, ski industry Pixar film. Ooh,
0: there you go. It's funny. I I had a even less than half-baked business idea for you, but I I found myself thinking like maybe we could join forces in as- in some sort of like ski Cartoon animation plus expert witness type of thing. And, uh, we just kind of made that our gig. Cause like you said, that, that, that witness probably did all right. And, um, and it's, uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Like I, I could do that. Like I could, I could stand up there and do what he did. Um, so I, and you, you absolutely could probably much better than me. So I think we might have a new business opportunity on our hands.
1: I think that's great. You know, I was I was just realizing wow the like in my life I never thought I would hear the words center of mass and spooning <laughs> in the same sentence. Which is which is insane. Mm-hmm. I mean like they clearly put a lot of thought into the physics of this, which I I don't know. But I think to your point about this business idea, I mean, think about how many crashes there are at these ski resorts and how many of them involve high net worth individuals. Like driving down I 70, (laughs) you see all those signs for like ski accident lawyer. But what if there's like this ski accident reenactment CGI expert witness for the lawyer Mm. service? You know, there's, you just have to create a really fancy billboard, place them in strategic areas and someone, you know, you just only need to get probably one or two of these cases, and it pays for itself.
0: That's right. That's right. Anyway, we you know to be continued off air maybe, but um, I think I think we might have something here. So um, yeah, and I will have to say, while I I spend very little amount uh, of my time defending Gwyneth Paltrow, I actually am really happy that she. That this got that this got dismissed because I am not at all a fan of frivolous lawsuits, and this very much seemed like one. And so I will say I'm very glad that this got dismissed. and And if I were her, I'd be real bummed that I had so much time and energy wrapped up in this stupid case. And um, here's to uh, fewer frivolous, stupid lawsuits out there.
1: Oh man, totally. I think the other is just like the PR. Disaster for the ski industry as a whole. Just trying to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion and you have the claims of harm being that you couldn't enjoy the wine uh-huh. and whatever, whatever Terry Sanderson's claims were. It was like, oh my God, stop. Stop, just make this end. Yeah, make this end. <laughs> this is not good. This is not good for the, the image of the ski industry.
0: <laughs> I think there was also, because I think I commented on this, I think I saw a claim about I had to miss half a day of skiing, you know, and I actually said, I was like, yeah, I'd be mad about that too. But I, did, I missed the part about I couldn't enjoy the wine. So um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really, we're really <laughs> plumbing the tragedies of, uh, of this event. Um, my God.
1: <sighs> next. Yeah. Next time we need to put a monetary value on our ski days. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's
1: our, that's our exactly. homework.
0: <laughs> All right. Let's, let's quickly uh, move away from this. Um, we like to do recurring thing on reviewing the news called Blevins Corner. And we have a really interesting piece to discuss on April 13th. Jason Blevins in the Colorado Sun published this article titled Luis Benitez returns to outdoor recreation political landscape with push for a federal office. Now, turns out, you know, Luis, and you have some thoughts on why it is that, you know, those of us who care about the outdoors ought to be particularly interested in this notion of this new office, uh, a federal department.
1: Yeah, totally. So I met Luis uh, back in 2017. I was living in Denver, started Natives Outdoors. And there's a whole you know, conflict over the outdoor, outdoor retailer show and it moving, you know, basically moving out of Salt Lake. Um, I joined the outdoor rec advisory, uh, board for his office when he was there and, and that was awesome. So I got to work with Lee's pretty, pretty closely. Got to be a part of the Confluence Accords, which was this, you know, this generalized agreement for all these outdoor rec offices that were coming online. Um and it's been amazing to see I think since that time how many offices of outdoor rec um are starting to pop up across the country mm-hmm. you know like Massachusetts has one and there's a bunch of others that I was surprised to see when I started googling for in preparation for this podcast and you know I think one of the things that like the is is really key about these offices is that it provides a foothold And a platform for the outdoor industry, which is a massive part of the US economy. The measurements for the GDP of the outdoor industry began in mid 2000 teens. And then in 2016, they released this final number and really gave the horsepower to say this industry needs a voice and needs coordination at a state level to make this happen. But one of the things that Luis identified early on and a number of others was that there's no presence at the federal level. So you have you know, a lot of industries and sort of these office, these coordinating offices that exist in the federal government for things like farming or industry or agriculture, but not at the outdoor rec level. And one of the things that's really cool and why this is important is that these offices are really important in helping guide and direct funding, provide expert, you know, expertise uh, to Congress and writing bills and to being uh, grant makers, to being you know, sort of this voice for the industry um, more broadly. Um, And, you know, when we're looking at the future that we hold, I mean, part of that is there's a lot more people recreating now. There's a lot of industries that's supporting that. And if we don't have that support at the federal level, a lot of things can get missed. And I think a lot of opportunities get missed. So Luis's um, uh, proposal is to really take this from the economic angle, because I think there's really an opening there. Um, with the U.S. Department of Commerce. And uh, he and I had talked and, you know, part of the part of the conversation is this is also needs to be the conversation on Department of Interior, but there's little less traction there for that. So in commerce, really, it's just to help support and ensure that this industry continues to thrive in the future um, and that we, you know, focus on things like conservation, focus on things like workforce education, economic development, and public health. Um, which really tie into this confluence of that all these state offices agree to, and I think, you know, this is going to be—I'm going to say when it happens—I'm mm-hmm. really hopeful. Um, I think will be a really huge driver, and I think a game changer for how outdoor rec is uh, happens at a federal policy level.
0: So let me pick your brain then on kind of a couple aspects here. Do you think the most significant part of this will be? as you just said, like policy happening at the federal level, or do you imagine that the bigger impact is just going to be what the injection of funds might look like, right? Kind of two different things.
1: Yeah. I would say they're one in the same. I mean, cause most of those offices are allocated budgets or have abilities to do grant making, to do input on policy, all of the above. Hmm. Um, I I think the possibilities of what will happen there, I think, you know, to be determined. But I think just simply having that voice at a federal level is important because the work that I've done in DC prior and working with, you know, congressional offices and even agency level folks, career folks, political appointees is that there's no one in the government that's really an expert on outdoor rec and all the contours of everything from, you know, the Visitor experience yeah. all the way to like industry. You don't have an office that focuses on that. And I think just having that centralized force, working we're going to see is it's going to percolate through um, a lot of the legislation that we'll see. And I think we'll just make for better regulation, better laws, better funding. Mm-hmm.
0: All, all uh, of it.
1: All, all yeah. of it.
0: The article ends <laughs> uh, with a bit of a wink on the topic of Luis and running for office. Care to comment? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if you have a book being written,
1: uh-huh. an autobiography, I mean, it's very much the hallmarks of what politicians do when they're on that path. And I mean, it, it'd be it'd be awesome to see someone who's climbed Everest seven right. times. Then, go, you know, go climb to, hope maybe the highest office in the land. We shall yeah. see.
0: <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. I mean, even... I, I confess I'm sort of excited about the prospect, regardless of what office we're talking about. Um, but it's like, you know, I, I, I think maybe some of us, many of us perhaps spend a lot of time just wishing that we thought that the really smart, energetic, uh, interesting politicians out there, well, that there were just way more of them then maybe it sometimes seems like there are. And um, I think when we go through and think about, you know, the people in politics holding positions that we just think, this is somebody that I'd be really eager to go see what they did. Um, Well, Luis is definitely in that bucket for me.
1: I think he's having worked with him, work in partnership with him. I think he has the skills to really bring a lot of different folks to the table to have conversations And of course, he's really inspiring. So, you know, that goes a long way for being a politician.
0: Yeah. yeah. Next thing, I think we're going to turn to air capture. And we've got kind of two articles here. There was a piece in Reuters that I had proposed we take a look at, and then you quickly dropped another article in. And so um, the piece from Reuters, the article says, facing brutal climate math. The U.S. bets billions on direct air capture. And then I, I put that in and, you know, propose like, Hey, should we, should we discuss this? And then the article you dropped in our doc was published in Nature. And that article says carbon dioxide removal is not a current climate solution. We need to change the narrative. And the subtitle of the piece is drastically reduce emissions first. Or carbon dioxide removal will be next to useless. So, Len, um, big topic. Lots of money getting thrown into this space. Lots of talk about the promises and prospects of this direct air capture technology. What are your thoughts on sort of what's happening around this subject?
1: Yeah, it's, there's a lot of money going into it, and I think there should be. I mean, this is, um, it's a big, big engineering hurdle that we face in large part because of cost um, and because of yeah the constraints around carbon dioxide removal. Um, the Nature article, uh, basically to talk about what CO2 capture is, is that effectively this is either chemical or physical ways in which carbon dioxide uh, is removed from the atmosphere and then uh, stored in a permanent or semi-permanent Storage structure or product or whatever it may be. And so the Nature article, I think, really mentioned this in, in a great way is they talk about it as time travel. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, we're, you know, basically rolling back the clock and how many emissions we're spewing into the atmosphere. I think one of the just total kind of tangent on this, one of the another study that I looked at in terms of looking at, you know, how do we think of CO2 is that basically right now, About one in every three CO2 molecules in the atmosphere have come from human activity, um, which is kind of mind boggling to think about, um, but also talks about the scale of this issue. So, you know, really at at its core, the biggest challenge for CO2 capture is cost and scale. Um, Right now, it's just incredibly expensive to uh, capture CO2 from the air. Um, and then the second part is that the scale of this is really challenging. You know, a really a really good example is that they're, you know, a direct air capture plant. I think there's like one running in Iceland, for example, and a few others across the world. You know, if they're mo- removing one million tons of CO two, you know, it, it takes us. It takes us basically. It rolls back the clock on emissions globally by two hours, hmm. right? And yeah. so. This is a larger scale plant than we've ever seen built to date. These plants are generally tend to be very energy intensive. And so if you're, you have to, in order to make this equation net out to actually have it be a net reduction, you have to have all of that energy coming from renewable or lower carbon or renewable sources because they're very energy intensive. So, you know, when we look at, you know, in the policy realm, it's like, basically we have to weigh what is the most cost effective option for us. And generally, the consensus right now is that reducing emissions, shifting our economy to lower carbon sources, one, addresses a scale issue, and then two, is more cost effective. But I think that's not to totally downplay the role of direct air capture, because where we're at right now um, on our climate journey is that we're going to have to do direct air capture at some point. And so right now, it's not cost effective. And I think even to the future, we're not talking about, you know, this isn't going to solve our climate issues with the constraints that we're faced. And really, the constraints are, of course, cost, but then it's, where do you put the CO2? Can you ensure that the CO2 stays underground? Um, Because they're finding in some instances, it's leaking out. (laughs) which is just, you know, darkly funny. Um, And, and then, How much land do we dedicate to this? So yeah, it's a, it's a big challenge, but I, I'm glad to see that there's movement and investment in it because we're going to have to do it.
0: That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think I feel like I've read enough articles or heard from enough people who don't actually have that same conclusion as you that they're just like, no, this isn't, this isn't part of the actual solution. And so I think what you make sense, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It is absolutely not the solution, but I can, I think you've spelled out well why you think it is going to have to be part of the solution.
1: Yeah, we really, you know, this, these technologies take decades to develop and, you know, we maybe we'll hit a point in which there's a massive reduction in cost where it's, Commercially viable um, and not needing massive government subsidies, um, but then we start running into other challenges of where do we put this? Yeah. You know, where do we put all the CO two and that's that's the other hurdle looking down the road. So I mean, really, I think we're going to have to just spend as much money on as many different solutions, but also do the bread and butter things that really we know will drive lower carbon emissions, which is changing how we consume energy.
0: Okay, well, you know. Um- Cody and I typically do a segment called The Most Canadian News, but I thought it would be fitting, you know, given the Sonoran Avalanche Center and where you live and all that, if maybe this month we ought to do The Most Sonoran News. Do you have anything for us, Len?
1: Well, I tried to avoid all of the most uh, gruesome... Cartel news, <laughs> uh, yeah. which there is plenty, uh, but instead to choose a little bit less gruesome, which is, I, I want to say less gruesome, maybe gr- gruesome to the to the animal kingdom, but the, the the title of this article, it's from the Fronteras desk from KJZZ. It says this Sonoran city removed the spines from hundreds of stingrays on its beaches. And the reason why they removed the the spines from these stingrays was because they were preparing for an influx of tourists Ugh. during Semana Santa Holy Week basically so that you know tourists wouldn't get stung by stingrays cuz they're incredibly painful um you know and it's it's obviously a deterrent to tourists coming so uh basically they they basically despine hundreds of these stingrays in this coastal town called Huatu Tom or sorry Huata Bampo um, and, you know, people are obviously calling this mutilation. Um, it's basically making these animals defenseless. And it really just doesn't solve the solution. But yeah, it's... It's
0: it's, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah. It's, so, it's bad. so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> uh, when you were like, well, I wanted to do something less gruesome than, you know, cartel violence. I was like, I don't think we got very far away. <laughs> I, I also think no, this is an example of why human beings, we probably need to just go extinct as a species. Like we just, we go around <laughs> mutilating stingrays so we don't upset the tourists. Oh man. I know it's, it's
1: like, uh, yeah. Like taking the antlers off a of bull elk or something yeah. because they pose a threat to their tourists. It's uh, so bad. Uh, uh <laughs> I'll try to, I'll try to find a little bit more uh uh lighthearted news from from the Sonoran Desert next time. <laughs> okay. Okay.
0: Yeah, we we might just bring you back to find some uh yeah, some, find some more cheerful news from from that corner of the world. Dear Lord, totally. people. Dear Lord. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Us- usually the ones with Canada are just kind of f- <laughs> fun and it's like, "Oh, yeah, beavers are wreaking havoc and forcing people to go outside and enjoy nature because they're chewing down, you know, power lines and interrupting internet and it's like it actually turns out to be lovely. Not not quite the same story here. Um, but yeah, I think the, the
1: other the other uh, news article I'll just read the title yeah. was Caborca Cartel Fends Off Chapitos in Sonora, Mexico. I just was like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know <laughs> yeah well yeah uh, it's a big world out there um okay well it's a big world out there it's a big world well here's <laughs> hoping and praying for all the stingrays <laughs> <laughs> may, may they maybe they-, they,
1: they said they said they stopped the person that was doing it so i think we're good
0: oh they they so, wait, this was a rogue mission? This wasn't, like, sanctioned by I, the a Tourism Association?
1: Uh, you know, I mean, government, you know, government control, presence of government in northern Mexico is tenuous at best. So, it was probably one of those things where, you know, a local guy who runs a tourism business was like, hey, these are, like, keeping people away. So, let's solve the problem let's go to the root of the problem in his mind the root of the problem uh and yeah he probably he started doing it and then i think probably the government got wind of it and then public outcry government steps in asks him to stop okay (laughs) but yeah government government role in northern mexico is tenuous at best
0: yeah gotcha okay all right um my goodness um Maybe it's time we hurry on to mountain town advice. Let's see what you got for sure. us here. here. I don't <laughs> think this involves the mutilation of any stingrays. Um, so <laughs> it's just, it's maybe devolves <laughs> the fact that no one can find housing anywhere, um, in any mountain towns. But, um, you know, this is now, this is our uplifting segment. So, you know, the, the mutilation of affordable housing. Yeah, yeah, from one from one <laughs> mutilation to the next. Um, Caitlin writes, um, hey there, big fan of the podcast. My mountain town question is about help with housing. There is a position opening for the company I work for in Telluride, Colorado, and I am going to apply, which would mean relocating there. I really hope I get the job. I am super excited about the opportunity. It's the same position I currently have, which is a visual merchandiser for Patagonia, but in a way more dream location. I think it would be an ideal place for me to live. I have started looking at housing there to get an idea of options, and there seems to be almost nothing available and i can't afford to buy a home there i just want to rent a one bedroom apartment for 1200 to 1500 max a month i don't know if that is possible though i currently live in portland oregon and with this job i am able to get a one bedroom apartment for around that price uh, actually a little bit less so do you have any tips or even connections for housing opportunities around telluride I really want to try and get this job and will be so bummed if the only thing preventing me is housing. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Len, thoughts?
1: Oh, man. Oh, man. As much as I don't like saying this, it's just I've heard this story time and time again. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean you live in a mountain town, don't you? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I live, I live in a very inexpensive mountain town that we call Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit different, but you know, the time and the folks that I know and live in Telluride, you know, there's a lot of resources. And one of the, one of the things that end up ends up happening is that people commute in from, you know, the sort of bedroom kind of call them bedroom communities, but the small communities that are around there. And, um, a lot of the deals happen happen by word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, happy to happy to connect you with my homies that live there if they have leads. Mm. So yeah, Jonathan, yeah. Happy to, if you want to make that connect, I'd be happy to point them to folks and yeah, start making that happen. But yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I think there's this larger challenge and you can probably speak to this more of like second homeowners and the ways in which short term rentals have really affected these markets. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, it makes us, Yeah, just so it's such a bummer. Yeah, (laughs) such a bummer.
0: Well, I think, I mean, one thing to say, you know, because of the housing situation, turns out many businesses are really hungry to get good employees there and to find good employees. So I am hearing about more and more kind of creative situations. So, you know, I I guess if there is... (laughs) the upside of any of this it's at least it's not like we're saying nobody can afford any housing and absolutely no one is trying to hire right like people are businesses are very much trying to hire now we just need to solve um maybe not just need to solve but now we need to really work on the housing part so yeah um caitlin um Len just offered. So send a note to Len or the Sonoran Avalanche Center. Um, and furthermore, anybody in the Telluride community hearing this, feel free to send Blister or Len a note if, if you have something interesting and maybe we can do a little bit of, um, matchmaking on this one. Um, you know, we actually had a conversation, um, at our last Blister Summit that Dove into some of these issues again on housing and related issues. So I thought it was an outstanding conversation. We should be getting that conversation out soon. And we are going to do, we did a, we did a series on this podcast a couple seasons ago, just called Mountain Town Economics. And I think we'll likely do that again in the coming months, because I think it's time to get an update and See where any progress has been made, maybe find out where things have gotten worse, but also hopefully identify some of the solutions and things that are in the works because this problem did not just crop up a week or two ago. it's been a thing, and it's been a thing for some years now so um yeah big
1: challenge- big mountain town challenges man yeah.
0: it's a bummer yeah yeah um but I know in a lot of communities, including Crested Butte. Um, again, it's, it's little consolation for right now, but affordable housing development and, and solutions on this front are in the works. So again, the bad news is I'm not expecting a radically different landscape this next winter, but I do actually think there's reason to be optimistic if we're looking maybe in the three or four or five years out from now. Um, again, no consolation for, for folks, um, looking for work and trying to find a tenable living situation now, I realize, but, um, let's at least hope that we will in fact see an improvement, uh, in, in this situation.
1: Yeah, totally. I don't have much, I don't have much to add there, but yeah, it's, it's such a, I just talked to so many of my friends were. You know, housing's a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, to live in these beautiful places, it's a big challenge. So,
0: do you know any jokes or anything, Len? Like, I feel like we need, I don't really know any jokes, but I just feel like we need to, like, we need a palate cleanser. Lighten the mood. Yeah.
1: The hell? I know. We, I mean, from, D, D, yeah, to mutilating stingrays to mountain town housing problems. Jesus, I feel man, I I don't know, man. <laughs> I
0: feel like most of the time I talk to you, I'm mostly just laughing the whole time, and now I'm like, yeah, we just talk about mutilation, and um, I don't know.
1: I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Luis Benitez running for public office is going to be our savior to mutilating animals and. Mountain Town Housing, so maybe we, that's where we put all our all chips. all of
0: our chips. Okay, we're pinning all of our <laughs> all hopes. Of chips on Luis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, next section: what we're reading and watching. You start, Len. What have you been paying attention to in the media landscape?
1: Oh man, media landscape. Uh, uh, I'm not going to. Well, I'm, I'm going to not say what I've been reading because it's. Not dark. It's dark and <laughs> climate related. Uh, but, but today I obviously I've been watching that Gwyneth Paltrow segment on repeat because it's so great. Uh, but the other, the other thing is I've just, I've, I've always been curious about the holding companies for all of these outdoor industry brands. I mean, as, Folks might know, you know, a lot of outdoor companies don't exist as their own brand. You kind of find these outliers here and there like Patagonia and their interesting trust situation with the Home Planet Fund and um, and others have more of the standard, you know, venture capital owners. And I just went down the went down the rabbit hole of learning about, you know, Clarius Corp that owns Black Diamond and blah 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 blah, and I, but I think what started standing out is just, is just like you know, it's like fairly standard stuff. You have a bunch of brands or a bunch of these holding companies that own of a bunch of direct to consumer kind of brands and. I was like, wow, what's the weird one? <laughs> I found one, uh, uh, Mammut, uh, who's, you know, makes a wonderful beacon yeah. that I yeah. use and a bunch of outdoor clothing. They're owned by a company called Telemos Capital, which is a UK-based <laughs> venture capital firm. And I just started, you know, I was like wondering you know, who are they? What do they do? And so Delamos is interesting because they have a portfolio of the brands that they own. You know, they have healthcare services and some other things, but they're consumer goods and services. They own three companies. Uh, Mammut is one. <laughs> Vittoria Tire, which is a large manufacturer of bike yeah. tires, wonderful Italian bike yeah. tires. And the last is the Love Honey Group. And so it's like, huh, what's the love honey group. And so I, I reading from their website, it says the love honey group is the world's leading sexual well-being company delivering qualitative and innovative pleasure products to customers across the globe via own and direct to consumer <laughs> web shops. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> so these holding, <laughs> these holding companies are interesting because the way that they're structured is that basically all the profits from these companies flow upward to the holding company and then they'll redistribute across these brands. So I was like a sex, (laughs) sex toy money has either ended up in Mammut or vice versa.
0: (laughs) (laughs) To me, this is, this might even be better news than Luis Benita's running. I love this idea. I also, I think instead of like talking about it blister that how we like review outdoor products i just want we from now on just review pleasure products that's what that's what we're calling mountain bikes that's what we're calling skis and snowboards yeah they're they're pleasure products obviously i mean I mean, honestly, Jonathan, it's
1: a bigger umbrella. You know, it's like diversifying the business. (laughs) Exactly. So,
0: yeah, you can, uh, you can, we start our new animation slash expert witness (laughs) testimony (laughs) branch of Blister. And then the, and then you can help me, you know, spearhead the whole Blister pleasure products. By the way. The (laughs) Blister. That's a terrible.
1: (laughs) I know. I don't know if that's a good thing. It's like we test them until we get blisters. Like what? Like, (laughs) I don't know, man. That sounds like a lawsuit to me.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We need to, we need to, yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, Well, uh, you know, I'm not at all mad about this one. I, I think it's great. I'm trying to think of crossover products. You know,
1: I mean, there's the outdoor industry. I like to say it's the outdoor industry urge to collaborate with anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've seen the just funniest and weirdest brand collaborations in the outdoor industry. Uh, So I don't know. Maybe it's like the love honey. I don't know. Berry Fox.
0: Uh Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Beacon. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. Or um, maybe. Yeah. This could be a new like a new. Outdoor focused dating app, right? Like marrying Beacon, right. and that like your search for love and pleasure. So there's kind of a Beacon technology vibe, but also you know um, a pleasure product element to it. So I think I think there are some some crossover opportunities here.
1: Or I mean, even like uh, you know the the speed wax that you use on your skis in mm. the spring. I mean, it's like what if there was like the love honey. Mammoth speed wax, <laughs> or you know the speed lube. Maybe that's what we have to call oh, it. My god. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. Um, multi-purpose product. You know, it's like the thirteen in one shampoos. <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> wax your wax your skis and. I'm not going to finish that sentence on the air. Um, okay. Well, wow. So that's what you've been reading and watching. By the way, you know, we really do like to celebrate nerds around Blister. And um when I ask what you're reading and watching, Cody and I are usually like, I don't know, football or big shows on HBO. You're like, I've just been diving into reading about holding companies. So, I, I, I feel <laughs> like when I reached out to you about this, I, I made the right choice. It was just validated right right then and there.
1: Uh, I think the other, the other thing I've been into related to holding companies has been looking at the uh, uh, defense contract arms of a number of outdoor companies. Uh, and <laughs> I, I've ran across a couple of the product catalogs for, I think one's called the leaf Arcteryx, which is stands for like, I think law enforcement and action or I don't know, yeah. something like that, but it's like they're, it's Arcteryx camo. Yeah. And it looks really good. Yeah. Uh, Patagonia's lost arrow project. And like, you know, it, it, it looks, it I'm looking at the catalog right now, and it looks like a Patagonia ad, except that the language is more, I don't know, defense contracty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes sense. I mean, like, you know, uh, military conflicts don't happen indoors, right? They I mean, don't. It makes total sense why there's this crossover. So...
0: Wow. You know, when
1: when the time when the time comes, I'm going to try to get myself that camo kit.
0: <laughs> when the th- wait, it's just be so you're ready. Yeah. Now, you know, we were just talking about crossover products, but now I think we might need to explore the idea of collabs because now I'm thinking about uh-huh. like the Love Honey group, like Love Honey yeah. and sort of military outdoor gear. There could be some like camo love honey product type of stuff going on. Oh man, yeah. I mean, oh, God,
1: <laughs> I think the, the one, the one, the one thing that I was messing around with uh, ChatGPT a few days ago is I was wondering what a collaboration between a backcountry avalanche safety company and Raytheon missiles would. Oh my them, God! I just fed to I fed to ChatGPT. Write me an Instagram post for. A like a SpawnCon ad, sponsored content ad on Instagram for a Raytheon missile system, the Sidewinder AIM-9X for avalanche control in the backcountry. And it spit out, I think, one of the best sponsored content <laughs> posts I've read. And it was literally for a missile that you can take in the backcountry, uh, you know, ostensibly to set off avalanches and to keep your homie safe. Uh and you know, of course, you know, I was thinking of like, okay, what what's the product discount code for the influencer? Or not? maybe it's like Mission Accomplished Ten.
0: <laughs> oh my goodness, dude your your brain your brain works in mysterious ways, man. Uh, um, yeah, your brain is the gift that keeps on giving. As is, um, yeah, your social. Your social media accounts, basically, because um, yeah, if you guys are like, this sounds weird and awesome, you can kind of get this all the time <laughs> out of Len. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so
1: let me let me let me read you the sponsor content yeah, yeah. post. It's pretty good. So this is AI written, a very simple prompt, but it says, "Hey, outdoor enthusiasts! If you love skiing, snowboarding, or hiking in the mountains, you know that avalanches can be a real serious threat to your safety." But did you know that there is a high-tech solution that can help prevent them? Introducing the Sidewinder system from Raytheon, the world leader in advanced technologies for defense, civil government, and cybersecurity. The Sidewinder is a state-of-the-art missile system that uses sophisticated sensors and software to detect and track avalanches in real time. And then trigger controlled explosions, explosions that release the snow and prevent a dangerous buildup. With the Sidewinder, you can enjoy your favorite mountain activities with peace of mind, knowing that you're protected by cutting-edge technology that's trusted by professionals around the world. Why take chances with your safety when you can rely on the Sidewinder? Visit Raytheon.com today to learn more about the Sidewinder system and how it can help you stay safe in the mountains. And there's a bunch of like random hashtags.
0: It's crazy. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) This is definitely the end of humanity. Oh man.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I, you know, the collabs are plentiful. I I don't know. I mean. (laughs) The collabs are
0: plentiful. I know. Well, man, all I've been doing is watching Succession and, um, that's really it. I'm, uh, so I don't, I'm not even, we'll, we'll save that talk because I don't even know how we top what you just brought to the table here. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Well, Uh, before I let you go, what is your summer looking like? What are any projects, things, trips, any things you're particularly interested in or working on? Yeah,
1: I'm working on a, uh, feature length film, uh, with a man named Ben Masters. He's made a few wildlife films that we're working on, but this story is about, uh, we're, we're, working on some filming across the Southwest and eventually into Mexico, uh, later in the summer and into the fall. But it's a wildlife story about the Colorado river and, documenting you know think basically think of planet earth yeah. uh meets the colorado river hmm. and it's been it's a big been a huge learning curve it's been really interesting trying to learn wildlife yeah filmmaking which is a whole different skill set uh and yeah and i think we're, we're looking at 2025 to release that so we're working on the filming now yeah. um and then the other really interesting project um, I'll be working on is, or actually I'm going to go ride unbound in Kansas in early June, hmm. which will be, you know, I think we'll see how far I can get, but you know, nice 12 hours in yeah. the saddle through rolling Kansas Hills and gravel. Uh, and then, uh, working on a project with, um, Trout Unlimited on, on, there's a big push to designate, uh, a portion of the Grand Canyon, uh, that's not currently protected by national park status or other sorts of protections. And we're going to work with doing some storytelling uh, with some native folks in the community and around who live and, you know, uh, spend time in the canyon and telling some of those stories. So, not a lot, but, you know, some, a uh, couple heavy hitting, meaningful projects. For sure. Um, so, trying to spend a lot of time on the bike per usual. Yeah.
0: Dude, that sounds awesome. And I, I mean, the Colorado River is just such a microcosm. I mean, for like, I don't know, everything in the universe kind of a thing. It, it, you know, it sounds like, oh, I don't know. It's just one river. And it's like, no, it kind of isn't. It sort of just ties in so deep and so broadly. So that's very cool um, that. I mean, basically every single person who considers themselves something of an outdoors person, I think needs to really understand what's happening with the Colorado River just more and more. And it it really, um, I think that can serve to be really just be eye-opening and help us understand where we are and what's happening. Does that seem right to you?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, I think I, I got into skiing because of course, the speed's fun and all of that, but what started building after that is understanding what happens to that yeah. snow when it melts in the spring and where it goes. I think that story is really interesting, yeah. but I think for us as who spend time in the mountains, spend time in the snow, it's also this incredible privilege that we get to be in this part of the water mm-hmm. cycle. So, I, that's one of the things I always think about every time mm-hmm. I'm out there.
0: Well, hey, man. Um great having you on and um i'll let cody know that uh we don't need his services anymore so you know um i think i think it's obvious um i think it's obvious everyone i'm sure listening will just be like yeah why on earth would you bring back that whatever that he whatever what's he off doing it's called the 4d project or something like that um you know we yeah totally. we can just yeah. let him focus I focus th- on that
1: I think it's the 48 project because a couple of the lines have collapsed. Oh, oh man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Uh, Not to tie the climate angle in again, but oh, my God.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, But, um, man, it's, it's always fun to talk. And I really, really appreciate the way you're thinking about things, what you're thinking about, what you're working on your scope of work and thought is very impressive to me. And, um, so I, it's always a pleasure to get to kind of connect and, uh, I appreciate you doing this and I look forward to more chances to connect down the line.
1: Definitely. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, sure. And, uh, enjoy the bike and be nice to all the stingrays out there. (laughs) I'll try my (laughs) best. (laughs) Take care, man. Take care, Joe. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Len for being an incredible guest co-host. And you should definitely check out what Natives Outdoors is up to. You should also be following the Sonoran Avalanche Center on social media if you are not already doing that. And if you haven't yet watched the video of the panel session that Len was on at our last Blister Summit It's called The Future of Snow Sports. You should definitely do that because Len is dropping a whole lot more information and excellent ideas, as are our other panelists on that session. So we're going to include a link to that in the show notes of this episode. And finally, just a shout out to my regular co-host, Cody Folks, I'm recording this outro on Sunday evening and I was just texting with Cody and man, he is on a bit of an epic on his current mission. So send Cody all your good thoughts because he could use some right now and cross all your fingers and um, maybe he'll tell us a bit about it on our next Reviewing the News episode. But he also said that on our next Reviewing the News episode, we might just do three hours of talk about succession in like five minutes about outdoor news, because obviously we got some catching up to do. So anyway, we'll see what happens next month. But Cody, um, man, good luck with everything. And to all of you, I hope you have a great week. We've got a lot of stuff coming down the pike on Blister, more Blister Summit videos, a ton of podcasts this week. So check out all of that and get yourself outside. And in addition to a guest co-host this week, we've got a guest podcast producer. The strikingly handsome Justin Bob is stepping in for Taylor Ahern this week. So J Bob, thanks for grabbing the wheel on this one and hope to see you soon, bud. All right, everybody. Take good care. Talk to you soon.